An ultramarathon's a war. The battle is the elements, is the mountain you're facing, and you throw yourself into it, and it, it I don't know, there's something, it tears you down, right? Mm. But um, there's, there's just something so raw and visceral about succeeding and just keeping going. There's something about that. You know, someone has said that without war, you don't know if you're a coward or a hero. And this is your war, right? Every, everyone wants to fight and see what they're made of. And this is the test. This is where you mm-hmm. get to see, you know, nothing holds a mirror to you like running, right? Especially long distances. You, you see exactly who you are. It's human. It's very human. It's a very human instinct. And unfortunately, like when you travel across this country, so many people are so far removed from that. I mean, they, they don't have a relationship with their body, first of all, and that's horrible. And they've, they've kind of just got, I think, sucked into this whole world of comfort, thinking that's going to make them happy. And you're bombarded with messaging from marketers and ads saying just that, you know, buy this luxury vehicle and you're going to be happy. Uh, and it doesn't work. It just doesn't, that formula doesn't work. And I think more and more people are starting to recognize that. That's Dean Karnazes. And this is The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. This is my podcast. Welcome. My guest today is the legendary ultramarathon man himself, Dean Karnazes, gracing us with his beautiful presence in this, his third appearance on the show. Check out RRP 115 and 259 if you missed them the first time around for our previous two conversations. For those unfamiliar, Dean is an internationally recognized endurance athlete, New York Times bestselling author, and philanthropist known for pushing his body and mind to inconceivable limits. Among his many palmares, Dean has run across Death Valley in 120 degree temperatures, which I can personally attest to having helped crew him on one of his many 135 mile Badwater adventures. He has run for 350 continuous miles, foregoing sleep for three nights. He's run a marathon to the South Pole in negative 40 degrees, On 10 different occasions, he's run a 200-mile relay race solo, racing alongside teams of 12, and he's run 50 marathons in all 50 states in 50 consecutive days, finishing with the New York City Marathon, which he ran in three hours flat. In addition to his many feats of mind-bending athletic prowess, I think it's fair to say his first book, Ultra Marathon Man, not only personally and quite directly inspired my path, It put the world of ultra marathon running on the map, laying the foundation for the sport's explosion in popularity over the last decade. In recognition, Time Magazine named Dean one of the top 100 most influential people in the world. Men's Fitness hailed him as one of the fittest men on the planet. He has been profiled in virtually every major publication and has been featured on 60 Minutes, David Letterman, CBS News, CNN, ESPN, The Howard Stern Show, NPR's Morning Edition, the BBC, and many other outlets. Most importantly, Dean is an overall stellar human. He's a dear friend, and I can't wait to share this conversation with all of you. But before we dive in, a few shout outs to our sponsors. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I 
love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media.
Okay, Dean. We talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about the fact that this is his third appearance on the show. We recap his bad water race and my experience crewing for him. We talk about his books and his latest book, Running for Good, his amazing Silk Road adventure and his relationship with the State Department. Uh, we talk about the growth of ultra running and his role in the sport, how he thinks about and perceives himself in the context of this growing community of ultra endurance enthusiasts and uh, many other topics of interest. I love this guy, so this is me and Dean Carnazes. Good to see you, my friend. Hey, it's good to be back, Rich. Thanks um, for having me on again. Always a delight to have you on. This is your third appearance on the podcast, but it's been like almost three years since the last time you came on. Yeah. The first time we went into your whole backstory in detail. So for people that are newer to the show, definitely check that out. The second one was mostly about um, your Sparta book and that whole experience. And mm -hmm. now we're in a new chapter, but we have a lot to catch up on. You've done a lot since I've seen you last. We both have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right, man. <laughs> we're, still, we're still standing, um, yeah. We God. are somehow, yeah. I don't know, but you haven't aged a day. So oh. whatever you're doing is working. I'm telling you, I'm ch it's killing me, but I'm, I'm keeping up. I don't know if it's killing you. I think it's making you younger. <laughs> What is the secret? Like longevity is one thing that I definitely want to explore with you. So you're what, 56 yeah. now, 55? I'm getting up there. You're getting up, okay, yeah. you don't want to <laughs> say, come on. Well, chronologi chronologically, <laughs> on the, on I'm, the a, clock. I'm above 55 chronologically, okay. but uh, biologically you, I'm in my 30s. You look great, uh, you're as fit as ever, you're still getting after it like crazy, doing all kinds of crazy adventures and stuff. And Well, you know the blue zones. Yes, I, I take do. it. So one of them is an island in Greece called Ikaria, mm -hmm. uh, where Icarus, you know, the wax wind landed, yes. and that's the island my mom is from. So Ikaria has the highest concentration of centenarians on Earth. So maybe that has to do with it. Maybe the genetic lineage plays into this a little bit. You're always oh. crediting your genetics, <laughs> um, but lifestyle is a big aspect of that. I mean, one thing all the blue zones share in common are these various principles that have nothing to do with genetics and everything about how everybody lives day to day. Mm -hmm. And you seem to be able to create your own little blue zone up in Marin. I mean, you still, you don't own a car, do you? Don't own it, a car. You don't own a yeah. car. Yeah. You pretty much run everywhere. You keep your life very manageable. I remember when we first met, and you've been like a mentor to me over the years in, in many, no, that was many, a paid many endorsement ways. people. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have. You've been like a huge in addition to being, you know, a great inspiration to me, you've been very helpful to me and have always been somebody I can count on with great advice. And and I believe if recollection serves me that I asked, you know, I was asking you, like, how did you this is the very beginning of me starting out and trying to figure out how to make a vocation out of doing the things that I love. And you were sharing about your, you know, basically your experience. And, and you said, you know, I don't, like one thing you learned in the corporate world is that you didn't really want to manage people. <laughs> and so, and so, and I remember that very vividly because now I'm in a situation where I am managing people and I, I would say it's not my strength. I'm trying to get better. Blake's <laughs> over there laughing. Their employees um, laughing yeah. at him now, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm trying to grow into that and, and learn that, but, but that's something that you were very clear about who you are and you've kind of, you've organized your life to to be able to do what you love doing, but also keep it um, at a certain scale so it doesn't interfere with the things that you love the most. Yeah, and I mean, that that 
involves making choices, right? Yeah, you have to and say, I'm sure you say no, you have to say no a lot. You have to say no a lot and you have to actually be content once in a while, which I'm not very good at being content, but you have to say, look, I've got enough. Like I could make this bigger, mm-hmm. it could be something more, but it's gonna take a lot out of me and I don't wanna go right. there. So these are like personal decisions. You gotta look inward, I think, to make. I just know I'm not good. Like you, yeah. I'm, I, you know, when people are involved, things get weird. As, as uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it's all good to other people involved. Is there anything yeah. you said no to where afterwards you were like, hmm, maybe I should have done that? There's been a couple yeah. uh, car deals. Oh, really? Yeah, where I'm like, God, <laughs> that'd be so nice. But uh-huh. people know I don't drive and I yeah. haven't owned a car in over Dude, a decade. Like, like Volkswagen gave you a car once. You had a car, like, I think when I went to your house, you had a car, you were like, I never drive it, but they gave it to me. And that's why I, I felt so disingenuous in that relationship, in that sponsorship relationship that I said, I can't keep going on with this. I mean, I'm driving at a thousand miles a year. Right. So it's just, it's it's, I don't think I'm, Doing a good job promoting because it's not it's not genuine. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so day to day, still like running every day is pretty much you know front and center. Like t- walk me through a typical day in the life when you're not traveling and doing these other various things that you do. Yeah. So yesterday I had a day like a day off, and I'm getting ready to go do a bunch of big races. Uh-huh. Uh, so I just uh, got up at about not real early, like seven a.m put on a hydration pack and uh, took off. Yeah. And ran about 50, 55 miles. Uh, <laughs> I was gone all day. Do you, what, do you map that out and plan? Like, do you say, okay, this is what I'm gonna do today? Or do you just head out and make a decision on the fly? Like, I feel good, I'm gonna go further or, you know, just kind of like feel into yourself. Like, how does that work? Yeah, no, yesterday I, I wanted to do a long training run uh-huh. and I thought, let's just see how far you can go before you feel like you're actually damaging yourself. Like how far can you push and still think it's training, not like big recovery afterward. Right. And that just seemed to be the spot. So I know I wanted to run over to the beach. Um, you've been to my place. Like so it's, Stinson it's, over to Yeah, Stinson, Stinson yeah. Beach. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go see the coast, did that and just felt kind of good. And it's not, it wasn't a fast right. run, Rich. I mean, it's not like I'm breaking speed records. It was a uh-huh. good long training run. I walked a lot on the uphills. You know, shuffled along a lot and ran pretty hard some of the downhills and just showed back home for yeah. <laughs> for dinner after sunset. <laughs> and what are the races that you're getting ready for? I'm going back to Greece to do Spartathlon. this race called the Spartathlon, mm-hmm. which is a 153 mile race from Athens to Sparta. Uh, and then I'm going to uh, fly to Australia from Greece to mm-hmm. run the Blackall 100 in Queensland on the Sunshine Coast. I don't know that race. I, it's amazing. It's on the Sunshine Coast of Australia. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> how can I, I say no to that? Right. Yeah, yeah. So back to back, wow, that's exciting. And why go back to Spartathlon? Just because that's your home turf? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel so comfortable in Greece. Like I almost feel like it's, I feel more at home in Greece sometimes than I do here. And um, that race has so much lore uh, involved and people want me to come back. You know, I'm doing a speaking gig and mm-hmm. they're giving me an award. And so I, I just can't let it That's go. That's always good. Yeah, lure, lure you back, right? <laughs> well, it was, it was like bad water. I mean, you know, I uh, I've got a different crew this year, and uh-huh. I get to experience it through other people's eyes. It's almost yeah. like having a child. Like everything's refreshed. Like you went out to Death Valley with me, right? And you were just you were amazed by it. I mean, I could see how you were taking it back, and it was all new. And to me, that's exciting because I've been there ten times. Right. But uh, to indoctrinate other people is-, is It was, of, it was de- we haven't talked about that. Like I think Badwater took place after the last time you were on the podcast, I think. 
What year was that? See, we are old, aren't yeah. we? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what year? I'm having a senior moment. <laughs> what year was that bad word? Was that was that 2017? It, I think 16? it was earlier than that. I think it was maybe 16 or well, 15. Well, let's recap even. it because it was an incredible experience for me. I mean, first of all, like I was honored that you asked me to help crew for you. I was delighted uh, to be able to show up for you. Um, and it was an experience like I've never seen before. I, I knew it was a really hard race, perhaps one of the hardest races out there. Um, but man, it was really something being there uh, step by step with you throughout the way. And I remember there's a couple of vivid memories that I have about that experience. One of which is when I arrived, I asked Coop, your, Coop. <laughs> who yeah. we're gonna talk about because we'll he's talk in the middle Coop. doing a crazy so thing So you know right what now. Coop's doing right now. I know, okay, we gotta right, talk right. about that. Um, I was like, so like, what's Dean's, like, how are we doing this? Like, I just figured like at a lot of these ultras, the runner's running and then you kind of pace the person in the last 25% of it, but mostly they're out there and you're just feeding them as they come by or you're leapfrogging with the van. And, and Jason's like, oh, he wants someone to run with him the whole time. <laughs> and I literally turned, uh, turned white <laughs> when he said that. I was like, wait, what? The entire time? Because it wasn't like I trained, I hadn't been training that much at that point. I hadn't thought that much about what I was getting involved in. I just said, yeah, I'm gonna be handing him water bottles. And then when the reality dawned on me of what, you know, how taxing this was actually going to be, I got terrified. And I remember doing, I think it was my first legit pull with you. And it was in the mid to late afternoon. I think we were coming through stovepipe wells. It was the hottest part of the day. And I was just, I was, my heart rate was like 107. And we were running like 10, 30 miles or something like that. Yeah. And I had to get Jason. I was like, I got to pull. I ran with you for like an hour and you were pulling away from me. I couldn't keep pace. And I was like, Jason, you got to relieve me. <laughs> and I was thinking, all I was thinking was, I'm going to be the only crew member who's going to end up in the medical tent. This is not a good look. You know? No, it actually happens more often than not that uh, the crew end up in the hospital versus runners. Because yeah. they're looking after, like you, you're looking right. after me like, hey, I got to support Dean. You might not be thinking about yourself. I mean, right. I remember you hopped out of the car. You didn't have a hat on or anything. I'm like, no. God, this rich roll guy is pretty no, hardcore. No, yeah. I'm thinking <laughs> he's going to go shirtless on me. I was not maybe. hardcore. I was just <laughs> unprepared. And now I'm remembering we did talk about this because when it came to the, I did a long pull with you in the evening. We went like most of the night. And a lot of that was walking because it was uphill. And you were telling me all about um, the book that you were working on, The Road to Sparta. So, and that obviously came out later. Yeah. Um, I felt better during that point. And we were also, I believe David Goggins was right on your tail for most of that day. And everybody knows how that guy's blown up and is part of the mainstream consciousness now <laughs> yeah. uh, in a really cool way, which is great to see. And that was, a, that was not an easy race for you. You were struggling, um, you had a hard time. It certainly wasn't your best performance. Um, but another vivid memory was just how gracious and kind you were throughout the entire experience. Like not one gruff moment, not one, you know, petulant outburst the entire time. I'm like, a, I'm a good drunk, I tell people. I very impressed yeah. by that. Well, it's like, it's like going know? drinking with someone, you know, you, you think you know someone and a couple shots of tequila in, you yeah. see a different side of them. Like, oh, this is not the person I thought they were. I'm, I'm a happy drunk. When, uh, mm. when I'm out there just beat to shit as I was during bad water, yeah. um, it's all good, yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, when you're, for people that don't know, when you're doing an ultra, like that just, it brings you, it brings out the best and the worst in people because you're so stripped down, like you're just so raw. 
Um, so it's not uncommon. They say like never have your friends crew for you because <laughs> you know the dark side of people comes out when all their you know sort of um, veneer is stripped away. And I was just imp- it just it spoke to me deeply about what kind of person you are in your character. And then I remember when the race was complete, we went back to the hotel. And you were just so wiped. You're like, I can't go to dinner. Like I'm, I'm just wrecked. Like I've never, I don't remember ever feeling this wrecked from a race. Like yeah. I don't know. You're like, I don't know what's going on. I'm like, dude, you just ran 35 <laughs> miles. What do you mean you don't know what's going on? But you're like, I can't go to dinner. I'm so sorry. I'm like, don't worry about it. So yeah. we all go to dinner. We come back. We go to sleep. We wake up the next morning. And the amazing thing about Badwater is the little strip of hotels in the main town is right along the course. So you wake up in the morning and you see people still coming in and you're like, yeah. wow, man. And you woke up and you said, I feel great. I'm gonna go running. I feel like a new person. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but I feel totally fine now. Well, I mean, and, and to your point about um, being gracious, I mean, think about it. I finished, we went back, I got a good night's sleep. There are people still out there running and we saw them in the morning right. and they're still running. I mean, they're out there for so long I have nothing, you know, I'm complaining it's taken me 32 hours, mm-hmm. you know, because I've run it much faster than that. But, you know, the the, the broader picture is that I finished Badwater. Right. <laughs> and to anyone, that's a huge accomplishment. Of course. So, yeah. Of course. Yeah. And it's so uplifting and inspirational to see, I mean, imagine being out there for another 15 hours, like how hard that's got to be. On you, you and know? the crew and your yeah, crew and everyone, everybody. just insane. I think... You know, if you're look, if anyone listening to this wants to just a, a life changing experience, I would say just go spectate at Badwater. Uh-huh. You're right. I mean, you just, you don't. It's about as far away from Earth as you can get and still be on Earth. Yeah, yeah. And so after that year, they change they, they changed the course because there was some national park like mm-hmm. changing of the guard. But now they're back to the original course, I think. Right back to the original course. The only difference is it's now a night start. Mm-hmm. So the national parks makes them run it at night because right. they're you're not allowed to have a uh, a race in temperatures above 120 degrees. Mm. <laughs> what attorney came up with that hard mark? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So the Chris, the, the race director's like, well, if we start at night, hopefully it'll cool down by, you know, to 120 when we start. But Is somebody monitoring that? Because it definitely gets up to 130. It does in the middle of the day. Yeah. But you know, there's the, I think they the just first- They mean at the start, it can't be the, hotter than that. Yeah, the first wave I think goes out at uh, 6 p.m. and then 8 p.m. and then 10 p.m. So right. it's the cool of the night. Yeah. It's like 115. That definitely <laughs> changes it. It does, because you're running through stovepipe wells, like you're running through the middle of Death Valley at night. It's right. a different experience. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not quite the same. That would have been better for me, <laughs> that experience. So Jason uh, Coop, who mm. was your crew captain that year, and he kind of coaches you a little bit. Like, I, get, I don't know if that's still the case, but you guys oh, yeah, collaborate no, or whatever. He, he's more like a mentor at this he point. Is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's just a wealth of endurance, uh, wisdom, and he's gotten back into racing. And so right now he's in the midst of doing this insane race that I'd never heard of called Tour de Ghent. Is that how you say it? I just it? call it the Tour of the Giants yeah. because it's insane. This race, it's in Italy. And basically you traverse like all the highest peaks in the Alps. Um, you have a, like a week to do it. It's 205 miles. And over that 205 miles, you have 80,000 feet of elevation gain. <laughs> <laughs> and you can, it's not a stage race. Like you just, however long you need to do 
to, to get it done, you get up to like, I don't know, six days or something like that. 150 hours. I told Coop, <laughs> use every single second. Yeah. Are you following the race? What's going on over there? I, I haven't. I, I, I saw on Twitter that he was doing pretty well after like the first day and a half or something like that. But I don't yeah. know. Do you know like the up There's been insane snowstorms. I heard oh yesterday. It's just snow flurries and yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you just, you have to bring all your stuff and you just sleep on the side of the trail whenever you feel like it? Or how does that work? There's, uh, they call, I didn't think they call them aid stations. They call them life support stations. Every, every 50K. <laughs> oh, <no>. uh -huh. <laughs> life support. Right. So every Only 30, every 50K. Yeah. It's 31 miles. Someone's saying, well, he just, you know, he just has to cover 31 miles. He can right. sleep in a hut. I'm like, yeah. Do you hear how much elevation? And there's only and, like fifteen thousand feet of elevation. I to know, get to that and it's one. snow flurries. It's yeah. Wow. You start crunching the math, and it's you know, it's how, tough. How many people do that? I think there's over a hundred people. I looked. I kind of looked through the roster, and I think there's over a hundred. It's mostly uh -huh. Europeans. Like right. Koopa's one of the few Americans. Yeah. Huh. It'll be interesting to see. I hope he makes. I mean, it. he's been. I've been following him on Strava. He's been put. It, he put in some really big days. Oh, in training. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, Wild man, yeah. I'm surprised you haven't done that one. Yeah, no, I, I, I tell my family like, <laughs> hold me in check. Yeah, <laughs> don't. It's so easy when you look online, right? Just to hit enter, just hit register. <laughs> so like a little button right there, like hold right. my hand back. Yeah, as once you're in, you're in. <laughs> so one thing we haven't talked about is your Silk Road adventure. Yeah. So talk to me about how that came together and what that experience was like. So I was contacted by the State Department to be a U.S. athlete ambassador. And it was actually John Kerry when he was in the State Department. He was a big mm -hmm. cyclist. And he said, I have this idea that uh, I'd like to celebrate 25 years of diplomatic relations between Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan mm -hmm. by linking the three together on the ancient Silk Road. The ancient Silk Road passes through all three countries. And he said, I was going to try and cycle it, but it's just there's, it's not going to work out. What do you think about running it? <laughs> uh -huh. So it was 525 uh, kilometer run between Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. And I was a diplomat. So I had like diplomatic obligations the entire way. It was a really bizarre experience. What were those obligations? Uh, I spoke at embassies. I spoke at schools. I spoke mm. at um, municipalities. Yeah. So every day you'd run a certain amount and then you'd have some kind of something on the schedule where you'd have to go talk to people? Rich, I don't know how to describe what I went <laughs> yeah. through. I mean, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, so you're the, back in like the time of Genghis Khan through parts of this <laughs> terrain, I would imagine. And it was in July. So it was in, like, it was about 110 degrees the first day and I ran across Uzbekistan. So it's like a desert. Uzbekistan's right above Afghanistan. Uh -huh. And I pull into town and I'm, I'm wrecked. I've run about 50 miles. There's no ice in our van. The, the crew is all Russian. They don't speak English. They've never crewed for a run. They just think I'm crazy yeah. out there running. And I pull into town, there's about 5,000 people along the, the roadway. Like they just said, when they briefed me, they said the entire town is gonna come out. These people have never seen an American before. Right. And here I come running down the road like Forrest Gump, literally high-fiving people and no one speaks English and I don't speak Uzbeki. So I can't understand a word they're saying. I come into the main square, there's a traditional dance going on, there's music playing. The mayor's there. And they said, when you get into town, they're gonna have uh, a feast for you because it's a nomadic culture. So they greet people mm. and they're gonna, they're gonna want you to try everything. So I pull in and there's enough food there for 30 people. I mean, it is a, a huge spread of food. And you're gonna love this. One thing, one of the mainstays there is um, horse meat. Oh, no. <laughs> 
So they hand me a plate of horse meat, and you know, you're in front of three thousand people. What do you do? Right. And you eat some horse. Wow. And then they handed me this bowl of traditional drink, and it looked like a half a coconut. Imagine a coconut sewed in half, mm-hmm. and, and it was white inside too. It looked like coconut milk. I thought, oh, it's something refreshing. So 110 degrees, 50 miles, I'm gonna drink something cool and refreshing. I drink this stuff and it's called kumis. It's fermented mare's milk. So it's horse milk that's been fermented. And it tasted like drinking Parmesan cheese. I mean, it was just the heaviest, most fermented. Was it alcoholic? It was slightly alcoholic. It tasted like drinking sour cream, Uh literally, like drinking sour cream. and. I was gonna gag, and there's five thousand people looking at me. You know, the mayor, you kind of, and I, you know, with their smiles of approval, like this uh-huh. is our traditional drink. What do you think? <laughs> oh my god, what is um, what is eating horse meat like? I can't imagine. Well, for you non-vegans, it was pretty yeah. good actually. Oh, no. <laughs> it was real lean, and yeah. Uh, um, was that in the middle of the run, or were you, had you concluded the run for the day? That was the end of the day, and the, then I yeah. went to a big dinner that night with a bunch of dignitaries. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it was like that Badwater thing where I'm just, you know, dead and I'm putting on a suit, <laughs> you know, going out to dinner right. with a bunch of dignitaries. Yeah. And how, so how many miles a day were you doing for that? I would do about 40 to 50 miles a day. Yeah. Yeah. And just, were you, and people like, would run, I, I probably had 10,000 yeah. people run with me. Some like wow. the military guys would come out and run with me. School kids would run with me. Uh, we had a couple of organized runs and it was, it was really a phenomenal experience. You know, passing through some of the villages, obviously, you know, in the back countries, they're not runners. I mean, you know, they're mm-hmm. more nomadic. And they just thought it was the funniest, you know, this guy running down the road. Right. You know, they've probably lived there their entire lives. Generations have. They probably haven't seen a single runner. And here's this American guy, you know, in this colorful outfit, just running down the road, waving at him. Well, you open up this new book, Running for Good, with a story from that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe tell that you story. You did your homework. It's such a good, it's, <laughs> well, it's a, like the opening, it's yeah. the opening chapter of the book, but it's a great story. I think it encapsulates a lot about, um, you know, the theme of the book, which is running for good, like about community and, and you know, connection. Yeah. Well, um, Kyrgyzstan has mountain peaks, like serious mountain peaks, like 20K mountain peaks. So I was running up in the mountains one day and the snowstorm, like sleet, hail, rain um, came in and I was totally unprepared. And as I was running along the road, I was starting to get hypothermia. Like my fingers were blue, all the things that happen to you when you're getting hypothermia. Yeah. And there was, a, there was a yurt on the side of the road and I could see smoke coming out of it. And I saw a, like a face kind of come out the door and look at me. And I kind of looked at this person and I kind of waved. And then I saw a little couple kids come out like, what's going on, what's, what's up there? And these kids came out and got me and they said, come on, like they just grabbed me by the hand and mm-hmm. brought me down. Cause I was walking at this point, just shivering. And they had hot tea inside and they gave me hot tea. They had blanket, they put these wool blankets over me. It was a yurt. Right, in yeah. a yurt, right? No in English, no English, no ability to nothing. verbally communicate. And they must've thought I was a Martian. I mean, they're looking at, I'm in colorful running gear. You right, know? right. <laughs> Out in the middle they've of- They've never seen an American, yeah, let alone a runner. Yeah. And and so like how how did you you know communicate with them like did were they able to kind of understand what you were trying to do just laughter and no I, I mean just, you said like the names of the cities right yeah. and then you're kind of like run you know yeah so trying, I kind of said Bishkek 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 because I knew the name of the city and they looked at me like why you know does he need a ride or what you know how's he going to get there and that kind of went like this just did the running you know arm swing kind of thing and they kind of looked at me like they got it like right. Jesus this guy's going to run the Bishkek. 
<laughs> and do you have you have crew waiting for you at destinations along the way? Like if they can't get over the mountain, like how does that work? Yeah, or not work? Yeah, yeah. And that was another thing. There was it was Russian, so the language barrier was incredible. The first day I came running into this van again. It's 110 degrees in Uzbekistan, mm-hmm. and it's this van that's horrible for crewing. It's got it doesn't have a sliding door like it's you know regular regular door. So I'm like going in and out of the passenger side trying to get in this van. It's just 200 degrees in this van filled with flies, uh-huh. no ice. And all these Russian guys, what they would do, they'd pull up to the crew spot, they'd stop, they'd just huddle down in the shade of the van and they'd start smoking. Oh no. So I'd run up to this van with just <laughs> secondhand smoke the van it feels and I tried to you know, eventually tell them no, no cigarettes. And they, yeah. at the end, they were running with me like little spurts and they, you know, they weren't smoking. They were really respectful. Yeah. You're like, God damn you, John Kerry. <laughs> yeah, um, was- you couldn't get like an American crew or some, some guys that know what they're doing to come out with you? Or was it just a budget thing? No, there was, I had one like handler and uh-huh. he was great, but he was, we were overwhelmed, Rich. We got thrown in this thing and it just kind of uh, took on a life of its own. There were so many variables to manage along with the meat, like we had a media person with us. Yeah. Trying to manage all these moving parts was just overwhelming. I mean, he, he couldn't, he just finally just was paralyzed. Yeah. I saw some short little video clips of it, but mm. did you like, w- did you capture enough to do like a mini documentary or anything like that from this? You know, the content that was captured is amazing. It was, yeah. a, it was a, uh, this Russian videographer and he did a really good job and he spoke English and all of the clips are still on the State Department website. So it's all That's there, cool. yeah. And what what did you like? I mean, those that part of the world is so foreign for Americans. We have a sense of what we think it might be like, um, but what is the reality? You know, what did, what did you learn about those cultures? Like, be you know, literally boots on the ground. You know, to be honest, I don't know. We have it so good here in America. <laughs> Materially, we're wealthier. They're happier people. They're just happier people. Like every family matters. Um, you're right. I never saw one Starbucks, one McDonald's. I never heard a, 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 any, I heard one British couple speaking. Other than that, I heard no English. The people are more respectful of each other. Uh, they look at each other. They say, thank you. They're, you know, they're, they're happier. They're just generally happier. Mm-hmm. The kids are smiling and laughing. I mean, when you get into the cities, you know, it, as usual, there's traffic and honking and all that kind of stuff. But overall, I would say it's just not as aggressive. It's a, it's a, it's a gentler place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We always hear these stories uh, time and time again, you know, people that travel to places off the grid and they come back and they're like, they're happier. They don't have anything, but they're happy. They go to India and, you know, people are missing limbs, but they're laughing. And, yeah. And, and we have this sense of how can we take some of that and incorporate it into our lives? And then there's like a half-life on that sensibility. And it <laughs> seems to just, you know, kind of fade away and we're just back to doing what we're doing, arguing yeah, well, with somebody at Starbucks When everyone is doing it around you, it's yeah. hard to keep, like you, you get a sense like if I'm not doing it, I'm missing out. Like I'm gonna fall behind or be irrelevant if I'm not tweeting constantly. Mm-hmm. They don't have that feeling. There's not that anxiety. And I think we all feel it here. We really, and especially with social media, there's just constant pressure. It's constant. And you really have to be disciplined to step away from that and just say, well, fuck it. I'm, I don't care. I'm not going to, I'm not going to respond to people today. Mm-hmm. I think you're, you're learning that, <laughs> wouldn't you yeah. say? Well, I think, you know, it's a, it's a weird relationship that I have to all of this stuff. Like I love what I do, 
Um, but it also, you know, it can encroach on the other things that I enjoy doing. And it's been such a gift that this show has grown and impacts so many people. And I feel a responsibility to that. Um, and, and there is a joy to it as well. Like there's, there's few things I'd rather be doing right now than sitting down and talking to you. It's like, it doesn't, yeah. it's not, it doesn't feel like work to me, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that goes into trying to create something great that, other, that impacts other people. Um, and that gives me a sense of fulfillment, but it can also um, you know, become overwhelming at times. And, and I have to remind myself like, oh, I, you know, I asked for this. Like this is, you know, I, wanna, I wanna be grateful. I'm not always grateful. Like this yeah. is the life that I wanted and now it's all happening, but how do I manage it all and make sure that my, my finger is on the pulse of the things that are most important and that those things are not you know, being uh, ignored or falling by the wayside. And that can, you know, it gets hard. And, and social media is an, is an aspect of that. Like, I use it to amplify the message of what we're doing here. Um, but I also can catch myself scrolling mindlessly, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's a difference between um, using it for a purpose and having sort of a detached objectivity about it versus, um, you know, using it addictively and in a consumptive way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know how to strike that balance, but you seem to have figured it out. Like you have somebody else who handles all that stuff for you. I think you did at one point. I don't know what you're doing now. No, I kind of do it myself. Yeah. People, they, they kind of caught on to it. They're like, hey, it's like, not your voice. People like, know. Yeah, they, they know, tell, they know. You know, they absolutely know. And yeah. authenticity is important, I think. Yeah. And and so if that means you're not posting as, as much, then so be it. Yeah. No one's going anywhere. You're living your life. Everyone knows you're out on the trail running 55 miles to and from Stinson Beach. Yeah. They'll wait well, for you. You know, <laughs> I, I'm probably like you. I get some really personal messages. I mean, runners feel a connection mm. and people confide in me in ways that is like, I, I can't step away from it. Like, you, you know, you, I get these messages. I'm like, oh, Jesus, really? You went through that? And I start, and like, and you're running because you read my book. How do you not respond to that? I yeah. can't like, and that happens all the time. And it's just, I can't walk away from it. I feel like a connection with this person. I feel like I, I owe them to respond, just a human connection. And that's fine once in a while. But when you're getting like, you know, 15, 20 of those messages a day. Yeah, you can't respond to all of them. No, but where do you draw the line is the thing. Once I read something like that, I'm so engaged. It's like, all right, I'm gonna spend 20 minutes at least, you know, crafting a nice response yeah. to, to what they're saying and well, answer questions and everything else. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a gift to get those and it's a reminder of the why behind what it is that you do. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of those people, their, it's their way of giving you a gift for what you've already given them. I don't necessarily think that you owe them like some super long response. Like I think a lot of them, they're probably surprised if you respond like, wow, you actually responded. Like they, they don't have an expectation for the yeah. most part. It's just their way of thanking you for the books that you've written and the work that you do. And, and you know, another thing that, that was palpable about, you know, me kind of tagging along with you at Badwater is, I watch you in real time navigate that. Like we go to the, you know, the banquet before the thing, you know, there's all this stuff around the race and all these people want a minute of your time. And you were very conscious of making sure that you were present for each of those exchanges. Um, you know, sometimes at the sacrifice of your own well-being and preparation for the race that you're about to run, right? Yeah. Like you're you're willing to allow that to tax you to a certain degree because that's the job. 
It, it is, and thankfully, to your point, it's part of my nature. So yeah. I, I just I'm a giving person, and if it's it's genuine, when I like make some sac- personal sacrifices for the betterment of someone else, that gives me fulfillment. I got to be yeah. honest, and you know, these messages I get. Uh, that say I inspire people, it goes both ways, right? I mean, I get incredibly uh, inspired by people telling me that I inspire them. I'm not sure how I inspire them, but, you know, it, it like, gives me a sense of purpose almost. Like, what I'm doing yeah. matters, you know? 100%. Yeah. 100%. I mean, when you wrote the first book, Ultra Marathon Man, the state of ultra running was very different from what it is today. Yeah. And and you know, you're partially responsible for this massive explosion of interest in people pushing their their limits and their boundaries in various ways and in creative new ways. We're always seeing new crazy races popping up all over the place and people are really engaged by this world in a, in a way that didn't exist when you like you really helped put this on the map. Like do you look back on that and think Wow, look what look what's happened since that moment. Well, I know the first year I ran an ultra was 1993, and in North America there are 3,500 finishers of an ultra. Uh, last year there were 115,000 finishers. Wow! So it, the growth has been insane. Yeah. And yeah, I I, I feel, you know, <laughs> conflicted sometimes. Yeah. You know, like Western states, the odds of getting into Western states now are are less than the odds of getting into Harvard. Right. Literally, there was something like. Uh, 15,000 applications for 369. It's always fixed at 369. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's impossible. Like, people are like, I've tried for 10 years. I can't get into Western states. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that has kind of been a downside. But damn you, Dean Garnett, for <laughs> making this so popular. Well, there's, yeah. there's such a hardcore, um, you know, sensibility, you know, with the, the tried and true community. Like, this was a community that. It was just about the love. They're sleeping in tents at the start line. There's 10 people. There's no fanfare. There's nothing. And there's a there's something beautiful about that, the the purism of that, that I think gets lost at some of these huge races like UTMB or Western States. But there's still so many other races that are still very much like that. And it's still, you know, I go to Western States and I think, this is not the Super Bowl. I mean, everyone's <laughs> like, oh God, this is the biggest thing ever. I'm uh-huh. like, it's still very grassroots. I mean, it's in a yeah. freaking, finishes in a high school stadium. I mean, right. <laughs> you know, it's still, to, you know, to people that are just getting into the sport, it is fresh and new and novel. And it's, you know, 3 million people ran a 5K in North America last year. So mm. the numbers of, of runners running an ultra is still a very, very small percentage of overall runners. And it's still very fresh and new to a lot of people. Yeah, the, room, the sports still has a lot of room for growth. Yeah. Well, one of the things I know that's been in the back of your mind for a long time, and we've talked about it in the past, is this ambitious goal that you have of running a marathon in every all 203 countries. <laughs> and and when is this going to happen, oh Dean? God, Come Rich. on. People say, do you ever fail? I'm like, I've Get been- Get John Kerry on the phone and sort out all this, this. This, yeah. these visa issues or whatever it is that's holding you back. That is an ambitious plan that's killing me. But I've been failing for seven years, and I. What's the what? What is the big roadblock here? Is it just it's, permissions it's just, in certain it, places? It, no, I've got the plan. I think I can get the permission. It's just lining up the sponsorship, you know, the mm. money to pull yeah. it off, and all of that uh, for the right cause at, at the same time. Right. It's just that everything's got to be aligned perfectly. 
Well, all one. you uh, Fortune 500 CEOs out there listening, yeah, yeah, this give Dean a call. Let's make this. A, let's get this thing going already. Yeah, and it's going to take a global brand, right? That's another yeah. thing. I mean, if you know, if you're a domestic brand, you might want to sponsor the U.S. tour, but it's one marathon in the U.S., mm-hmm. so it's a, it's going to have to be a global brand that's really invested in this, right? Yeah. So, getting permission to go to places like North Korea and like you've got that sorted out. There's a the State Department has a list of countries where I can't leave the airport. Sort of like uh-huh. you can set up a treadmill. You can have a treadmill set up in the airport, but you're not leaving the airport. Like we can't get you out of mm. the airport. And that list is kind of dynamic, as you yeah. know, as global things change. Yeah. So what's going on with this relationship with the State Department? I'm starting to <laughs> think you're you're you maybe you're some kind of uh, some kind of spy. They could like it's, dispatch it's, you to all these these places. Oh, he's running, but actually he's collecting intel. <laughs> it's been an interesting relationship. Yeah. That's a different world. That that whole yeah. What goes on there is a little bit different, uh, and tight, I can't I can't talk a lot lipped. about yeah, it. Yeah, you're being tight lipped. I don't know. I'm gonna spin a conspiracy yarn they, out of this. They, you're an attorney. They make you sign some <laughs> shit. Yeah. That's pretty funny, man. Yeah. Um, well, you you mentioned that that uh, you just ran. Was it yesterday? Fifty five miles. Yeah. I mean, you look fresh as a daisy. What is the what is the you know, has, as you start to age, have you had to change your recovery routine? Do you still bounce back like you always have? Or like, what, is it, what does it look like? How has it evolved? You know, one thing I'm not doing is setting an alarm anymore. So I'm trying to wake naturally whenever mm-hmm. I can. So, uh, you know, I, I applaud you for having this interview in the afternoon because it gives you the whole morning to kind of just regroup. So I don't set an alarm. Like before I used to sleep four, maybe five hours a night and the alarm would wake me up. Now I just, sometimes I only sleep four or five hours. Other nights I sleep nine or 10 hours mm-hmm. and I'm fine with that. So I'm not, I'm just letting myself wake up naturally. That's helped a lot. Uh, just, you know, purity of diet, continuing to refine my diet, um, intermittent fasting, you know, all the things that are kind of in vogue right now. Yeah, I've been doing that for 15 years. Yeah, and I never sit down, Rich. That's why I'm surprised we're sitting here. This is yeah, like, yeah, sacrilege. Would you want to stand? <laughs> we have these really cool ergonomic stools, though. That, that actually is that pretty should, comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as far yeah. as sitting, this is a good one. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, one of the things I read is is you know, there's a lot of you know, we can go down the rabbit hole on like how long you know after you train are you supposed to eat and what do you eat and how do you how do you you know make sure that you're accelerating that recovery process, enhancing it as much as possible so you can bounce back day to day. And one of the things that that I know that you do that I've experimented with that I think is very valuable and doesn't get talked about very much is actually you go out of your way to like not do those things because that provides an added stress on the body and an adaptive response that ultimately will make you stronger if you're doing it right. So rather than I have to replenish right after my run, like maybe let's not do that for a while. What, what will happen if I don't do that? I wait a couple more hours or I wait until dinner or something like that. Maybe I'm not as fresh the next day, but long-term, is this gonna make me stronger? I agree, I agree so much. And I also think that um, not only with uh, diet, but you know, coming home from a long, hard run, when you're hot, you just wanna hop in the pool, right? Or just hop in the shower. Uh-huh. I always say, don't do it, stay miserable. Just walk around right. in a miserable state in a hot, you know, your shoes are tight, everything is miserable, ride that out because your body's gonna adapt to it. Don't just immediately, you know, let that go and make yourself comfortable. Stay uncomfortable for as long as you can. 
sometimes I get back from like a long ride or a run and just because I got kids and responsibility, you know, like I'll just be in my bib shorts for like four more hours because I'm, you know, helping out or doing whatever needs to get done at work <laughs> or sitting at my computer. And I was like, I should probably shower at some point, you know? Yeah. I I'm think like, showering, oh, wow, showering, I, haven't, I haven't eaten yet. Showering's like overrated. Eat. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that overrated. I think it is. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. So inter what does the intermittent fasting look like? It's typically, you know, uh, dinner and then maybe all the way to dinner the next day. Uh -huh. But a lot of times uh, late afternoon, you know, maybe like I haven't eaten anything today. I got up. I do drink coffee. I love coffee. So I had a uh -huh. cup of coffee and I'm fasting right now. I'm, I'll probably eat when I get back uh, home. Yeah. So is that is that something you plan out or you just kind of feel it out and do it once in a while? Or is that like an everyday thing? Uh, it's, I listen to my body as much as I can. Uh -huh. So it's, you know, sometimes it's hard to fast because, you know, you just want to chew off the back of your hand. You're so hungry. Yeah. And if that's the case, I'll eat something. But um, now I don't, you know, I can go easily. I think people too often say, oh, I've got to eat. I got to eat. I'm going to die. I got to eat. You really don't have to eat. And if you cannot, you know, if you can withhold eating for half an hour, maybe have a glass of water, you get beyond it. Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten to the point where it's really not that difficult to just eat only dinner. Yeah. And train during the day. Like I, I went to the pool today, I put in 5,000. I haven't eaten anything today. I feel completely fine. Part of that I think is, is after doing this kind of stuff for so many years, and you've talked about this a lot, like you just become very adapted to it. You're very efficient at it. You, you're this fat burning machine. Like your body is so, is so used to these activities that they're just not that taxing, they're not as taxing as they would be to somebody who's newer to these kinds of pursuits. Um, and I think it does, it does fly in the face of that idea, like, oh, you gotta eat you know, three meals a day. Like, I don't know who came up with that. But I think the danger comes in with a lot of people who can develop eating disorders around this stuff. And I think you know, in the endurance community, it's not immune from a lot of people who can hide behind oh, I'm intermittent fasting or I'm doing this or this diet or that diet when they have a very unhealthy relationship to food. So, you know, I think people have to be really honest with themselves about what their motivations are. I agree. And I think you can look at people <laughs> and tell, I think you can look mm -hmm. at their nails, see if their nails are healthy, if their hair is really brittle. Uh, you can tell if someone, you know, has gone beyond a healthy diet into something extreme. And I think when you look at me, I'm a pretty healthy guy. You know, it's not like, I don't think it's it's too extreme. I don't, you know, yeah. I don't I don't stress about not eating. Like I can eat if I want to eat, and I can go without it if I want to go without it. Yeah, oh. I like that. That so when you're when you're going out for your 55 miles and you put on the hydration pack, what do you bring with you? You know, I discovered this stuff called the uh, Muir Energy. I don't know if you've seen Muir uh -huh. Energy. They're little packets. It's uh, they make the best nut butters ever. So mm. it's primarily nut butters. So mm. it's it's kind of keto. Yeah. Uh huh. And then water as well, or any kind I of electrolyte. No, I just drink water along the way. Sometimes, yeah, uh, yeah just water, yeah, right. plain water. I carry um, uh, a handheld with my with my hydration pack, so I've got a lot of water on me. And what's the like longest that you'll go out when you don't bring a pack or anything with you? Like it's just you're just going out without a shirt on or whatever. I'll do a marathon easily. Hours. A marathon, yeah, <laughs> yeah. easily. Yeah, uh -huh. Uh -huh. I kind of like that feeling because you're really, you're really really struggling to get to the get home yeah. yeah at that point well i would urge everybody out there to be cautious about that <laughs> and work their way up to it but i do think that 
you know, when you're out on the trails and you see people that you know are only going out for their 10K or whatever, five miles or something like that, who are just loaded loaded to bear with backpacks that are just filled with like, you know, enough food to feed a family of four on a picnic on a 4th of July. And you're like, what are you doing? You, you don't need all this stuff. Oh, don't get know? me started on that. Go I mean, for it. Tell me, yeah. preach it. Well, I mean, I still, I still do a lot. Like I can uh-huh. still go to a 5k and you know, I'm kind of a thing. Like people know who I am, even though they're not hardcore runners, even a half marathon. And you see these people at the start of a half marathon and their hydration belt is just filled with, you know, 30 gels. And I'm thinking, you're, you're, you're definitely going to throw up if you, you and eat they eat them all. all. They think they need them. They think, uh, well, I got to have so many calories before I start. You know, people still think they have to have pancakes in the morning before a race. And they still think they got a pasta load. So there's still a lot of myths out there with people. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, you've you've evolved quite a bit from the days of ordering a pizza while you're out there <laughs> running to, you know, what you're doing now. Well, I mean, I was in, I pos- I mean, I carbo-loaded. I'm sure you were kind of in that phase yeah. too, you were about the same. And that was the thing to do, right? You just load up on carbs. And I remember just standing at the start of a race, feeling so bloated in the morning at the start because I ate so much pasta the night before. And I thought, something's just not right. Like, I, I don't need to do this to my body. Oh. Mm-hmm. And now it's more of a low-carb approach that you have. Much yeah. more low, and lower fiber as well. Like before a big race, I really watch, especially uh, insoluble fiber. You know, there's soluble, there's two mm-hmm. types of fiber. Uh, insoluble fiber, and the stuff that passes right through you. I try to cut back on that a few days before a race yeah. for obvious reasons. Well, that, yeah, that's gonna, <laughs> that, that has an impact on how many times you gotta jump off the trail and pull the pants down, right? Yeah, well, yeah. Let's not get too graphic, Rich. <laughs> Listen, anybody who's you know, been out on trails, you know, trail running has had that experience. Uh, no, I ran a, I ran a 50K uh, the weekend before last, and I remember coming into Pantle Station. There's a, an aid station there, and there's a bunch of people. Hey, Carno, hey, how's it going? And I just run up and say, Where's the bathroom? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I just had to go so bad. And they're, you know, and then I came out, I'm like, I'm so sorry I didn't say hi to anyone. I just went and took a big dump. And they're like, hey, it's an ultra. This is what you do. This is that's the deal, man. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? That goes that's, with the territory. That's yeah. that's part of the Every experience. runner's been there, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about this book, Running for Good. This is your fourth book. This is my uh, second collaboration with the Chicken Soup for the Soul uh-huh. people. And I didn't know you had done another one. Yep, this is the second running book. And this is, uh, if you count Chicken Soup for the Soul, this is my sixth book. Wow. Oh. So, well, let, maybe let's start with talking about like the Chicken Soup for the Soul situation altogether. Like how did that come together? You know, I, when I was um, actually uh, in graduate school, one of my professors said, you guys have to read this Chicken Soup for the Soul book. I think it was the original one that came out. He's like, it'll ground you. It's, it was like required reading. Wow, and in I grad thought, school. And this is, yeah, this is business school, actually. I was uh-huh. an MBA, and I was I'm like, what, why are we reading this? And I was so enamored with these stories. So um, the, the concept of Chicken Soup for the Soul is their books are 101 short stories by 101 different contributors. So it's 101 people that write about being a human and whatever the topic is about. And it's, it's kind of voyeurism. Like you see into someone else's life, they kind of confess in about you know three or four pages some episode of their life. Mm-hmm. And it was really powerful. And I thought they've got something here. You know, obviously they've sold, I think 500, you know, half a billion copies. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, so I mean, they obviously, it's, it, it works. And um, when they came to me and said, let's do something about running, I thought, you know, this this is going to be great because my books, you know, you, both of our books, we're kind of, it's a different audience that we appeal to. It's not the everyday athlete, mm-hmm. right? 
It's um, you know more elite sort of thing. And this really was a book that was not just for runners, but for right walkers as well. And so I thought this is a great way to help spread the message, get more, you know, kind of evangelize the benefits of running and walking. Yeah. What was the first one you did with them? Uh, it was just called um, Chicken Soup for the Soul uh, on Running. Mm. It was just a running book. Yeah. And then you just put together, you like uh, collated a whole bunch of stories. Yep. Yeah, uh-huh. we get it. Like we had for this book, Running for Good. So the theme of this one is how is running brought good to your life? And we know what, you know, that could be through a charity run. It could be through losing hundreds of pounds. It could be through uh, overcoming PTSD through running. So it's created good in your life. And that's the focus of this book. Um, We received about, I think, 1,500 submissions. And again, it's 101 uh, stories. So it was was really hard to go through and, you know, curate and, and, you know, determine which ones made the final cut. Well, what's great is that um, it allows you to continue telling stories about running without making it about you. Right? You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Exactly. Like, like, all right, yeah. I've, I've written a whole bunch of books about this. Yeah. Uh, let's let a few other people well, when share their when, stories. Yeah, so I mean, I got, we're both kind of memor- memoirs. I've said everything like, I can how, say about How this. many memoirs can you write? Yeah. yeah it's like, <laughs> um, uh. And it's great. Yeah, there's the, there, there's all, it's all different kinds of people from all different walks of life yeah. who all have their version of how running has improved their lives. And also... Good being defined broadly to mean not just good in in my own life, meaning the storyteller, but also how can you use running to leverage good for others, right? Which yeah. is sort of like, you know, versions of your running the Silk Road. Yeah, and it's you know I'm I'm a, I think a little more immersed in that world than than you might be, just because yeah. I do a lot of like group events, like mm-hmm. you know fun runs um, with groups. And it's it's a great experience. I mean, I'm a very much an introvert. I think like you, so I prefer running on my own. You know, for right. 55 miles by myself in the in, you know in the trails of Marin. But um, you know, spending an hour with you know 30 or 40 or even you know 100 fired up runners that are just getting into it, it, it really uh, it it just it it grounds you. It gives you a, a better, broader perspective on running. Like not everyone runs. You know. In the mountains in Marin, or right. <laughs> 300 mountain, you know, 300 kilometers in Europe. I mean, a lot of people for them to finish a half marathon is it's, oh, it's, it's undoable. Yeah, like it's they, yeah. Herculean. Yeah, um, I just did uh, Jesse Itzler's 29029 event. Yeah, and actually, you were the person who first introduced me to Jesse. To do you Jesse. remember that way back in the day? I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's, he's become a friend. He's great. And and that event was magical for many reasons, but profound mostly because of what you just said. Like most of the people that were doing this event hadn't done very many hard kind of athletic things in their lives. These are like everyday people, business people or whatever. And unlike a 5K that's gonna be done, you know, in a half an hour or an hour or whatever, depending upon your speed, this thing, like on paper, it's like, well, you walk up a mountain, you take the gondola (laughs) down, like how hard can it be? Yeah. But it was really hard. It was hard for me and my group of hardcore friends. Like every yeah. every ascent back down was like you know close to two hours. So yeah. and it was thirteen times. So yeah, you had to do. I mean, that's twenty six hours right there. And yeah. these are people who've never done anything like this. And it was amazing how many of them just committed a hundred percent, went all through the night, didn't sleep, like just just did everything in their power to dig as deep as possible to get it done, whether that meant doing all 13 or doing 10 or doing six or whatever. And I got more inspiration from those people than 
from anything that I've witnessed or experienced recently. It was amazing. And what was great is there's no there's no leaderboard. They don't, he doesn't like, you know, track time or place or anything like that. And at the banquet, it's just about highlighting a couple people who, you know, really got outside themselves to, to, you know, exceed their perceived limits. Like one guy who had done four the year before and had lost a bunch of weight and then did 10 and a 65 year old woman who like got all 13 done right down to the wire. Like it was super cool to do that. So it inspired me to, try to expand my horizons to like, I am an introvert. Like I'm not like crazy about all the group stuff that like yeah. you do it all the time. And it's yeah. like, I don't know, man, you know, being around all those people, but I got so much out of it that, um, I want to explore being part of that. Um, well, it's, kind of world. and it's funny you bring that up because just yesterday I got an email from a guy, uh, from Singapore that had come over to, to do that event. And he's like, that was, incredible it was your book he uh -huh. sent me a photo of my book he's like your book inspired me to like explore this world and i just finished the same thing you just finished wow yeah that's pretty so, cool yeah but i mean to that point uh you know western states more people come out it's got a 30-hour cutoff uh -huh. more people come out the last hour yeah to watch the last finishers than are there for the winner a lot more so more people are inspired by seeing, can they make it in 30 hours? It's yeah. just a human drama of watching someone come onto a track with 30 seconds left, you know, after running 99.99 miles, just saying, come on, you can get there, you can get there. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. There, was a, there was a situation like that at the 2929 at the thing. There was a guy who had done 12 and he was at the summit and there was like, I don't know, an hour and 45 minutes left. Ooh, ooh, and yeah. he, you know, he was like, he was hurting and yeah. it, I think his fastest round trip was like two and a half hours or something like that. Yeah. And uh, Mark, Jesse's partner was like, well, this guy was like, I'm done. There's no way, there's not enough time for me to do another one. And Mark's like, come on, dude, the clock's still ticking. You got time, get on that gondola, go down and, and get it done. And he was like, okay. <laughs> and then everybody and the guy's rallied. Dead. He's dead now. But, but everybody yeah. rallied to like support this guy. So many people who had already finished went down on the course to help bring him up. Yeah. And there was a cheering section like bar none at the top. And literally he had like 30 seconds to make it across the finish line before yeah. the 36 hour cutoff. And about a hundred yards from the line, he like stumbled and I thought he was gonna pass oh. out. And everyone's like, get up, get up. You know, it's like 10, nine, and he got <laughs> no. up and he literally somehow got himself across the finish line. I don't know how he did it. And it was remarkable. He made it. It was so oh, awesome yeah. to see that. And that's the kind of thing that you see time and time again. I'm sure you see it all the time at all of these events that you go to. It, yeah, no, the, those and those those sort of moments are magical, aren't they? Yeah. yeah, there's something about it. And these are kind of the stories that are that are in this book, right? Yes, and you know, there's another there's another element that um, people don't really think about is there are spectators that come out to watch races. Like I, I finished New York City Marathon last year. You know, I've done it. I don't know, probably seven hundred dozen times. times. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm walking back. You know, it's just one of those New York things. I'm walking back to my hotel, and, and I start talking to a woman who congratulated me, and I said, you know, did you have a runner in the race? And she said, no. I said, what were you doing? She's like, I'm, I'm just was spectating. I'm like, you just came out to cheer? What, what did you think? She goes, well, I've done it for the last 20 years. Mm. I'm like, you just come out. She's like, it's the best day of my life. Like, there's something about watching these people and their persistence and how hard they have it. And just it just, it makes me filled with life. I never thought about that. Like, I would never think to go watch a running race 
for what you get as a spectator. She wasn't a runner. Mm. She just said it's something about the human drama that pulls you in. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that speaks to um, the broader inspiration, not just like a lot of this is like, well, you see that and then it inspires you to try something like that, but you don't necessarily have to be a runner or an endurance athlete. You can take that inspiration and apply it to something else in your life that 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 you care about that may have nothing to do with that, like you know some other goal that you have that has nothing to do with anything fitness or, ath- or athletics related. I get the feeling she wasn't even going to apply anything. She, <laughs> she I, I think she, she it just made her it just yeah. uplifted her. Like she just uh-huh. felt uh, like she was like glowing. Like it was just such an uplifting thing to see these people. Interesting. There's something about shared suffering, right? Uh-huh. You know, that's it's it's it brings people together. Yeah. yeah. So, well, let's talk about suffering. <laughs> Tell me about your relationship to suffering, Dean. Mm. I'm sure you've never been asked that. Before. It's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I I embrace it. I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I think it was Patton who said, uh, "Forgive me, God, for I love it so." He was talking about war, but an ultra marathon's a war. It's just uh, the battle is the elements, is the mountain you're facing, and you throw yourself into it, and it it. I don't know. There's something it tears you down, right? Mm. But um, there's there's just something so raw and visceral about succeeding and just keeping one foot. I mean, you saw me at Badwater. Yeah, you want to stop. Every step hurts. Every step you're saying, "I got to stop. This is horrible. I want to stop. I want to stop," and just keeping going. There's something about that. Yeah. What is it about that that makes us feel so alive? Is it because that's missing in our day-to-day equation, like we don't have to worry about survival anymore? Is it baked into our DNA? Or what is the, what is the you know, like once you've experienced that, you want more of that. And you realize yeah. like that thing that we're trying to remove from our life is the one thing that's somewhat essential to actually feeling completely alive and at your best. Yeah, I, you know, someone has said that, you know, without war, you don't know if you're a coward or a hero. And this is your war, right? Every everyone wants to fight and see what they're made of, and this is this is the test. This is where you mm. get to see, you know, nothing holds a mirror to you like running, right? Especially long distances, you you see exactly who you are. Yeah, mm. I think that that it's not um, it's not a mystery why you know, in addition to the ultra running community like exploding. You just mentioned some statistics of how many people run a 5K. Like, I can't imagine how many people do marathons. Like, and now we have Spartan races and we have every derivation of any kind of crazy endurance obstacle course challenge imaginable available in every city on every weekend all across the developed world. Um, why is that happening now? And I think it's because we've drained our, our, our daily existence from strain and toil. We've created these um, air-conditioned castles that we live in, and we're constantly being bombarded with these messages that the path to happiness is lined with luxury and ease and comfort and you know a flat-screen TV and the like. And that is not perpetuating happiness and fulfillment and purpose, but rather creating a mass epidemic of depression and disconnection and disaffectation. We have all of these people who are incredibly unfulfilled in their professional and personal lives in a way that that I think is unprecedented in human history. 
and it is an ill that is that is um, that is endemic to the most modern of societies, and these events are are like the antidote to that in some way. They're a way for people to step outside of this construct that we've created and tap into something primal and real uh, that that makes us human beings. God bless you. That was really well stated. I mean, that, that was, was that was poet. That was, that, was that was poetry. There, people. <laughs> I couldn't have said that better. That was no. that was poetry. I mean, yeah, I couldn't but, agree with you more, Rich. And you know, you go to an executive's office, and you know what's uh, behind them at their desk. You know, their medal from finishing Iron Man. Mm. I mean, that it becomes more important than anything else in your life, right? It's not the you know what you've achieved. You know what things you have. It's hey, I finished Iron Man. Yeah. It, there's something about it that just goes beyond uh, material. It goes beyond, it, it's human. It's very human. It's a very human instinct. And unfortunately, like when you travel across this country, so many people are so far removed from that. I mean, they they don't have a relationship with their body, first of all, and that's horrible. And they've they've kind of just got, I think, sucked into this whole world that you just described of comfort, thinking that's going to make them happy. And you're bombarded with messaging from marketers and ads saying just that, you know, mm. buy this luxury vehicle and you're going to be happy. Uh, and it doesn't work. It just doesn't, that formula doesn't work. And I think more and more people are starting to recognize that. Yeah. You, uh, you, when you finally get the car or the job, you're happy for a little bit. And then it just becomes, that's your job or that's the car that you drive. Yeah. And then you think, well, it must be the next car, or if I just get that next promotion, you're just on this ladder, on this treadmill of constantly chasing the next thing without having the introspection to to look within and understand that you know that hole is never going to get filled in that way, um, and that the path uh, towards what it is that you're lacking and seek the most. Um, is going to come from getting outside your comfort zone, from embracing adventure and experience, and you know tapping into that thing that is that is that does make us human, um, that does require us to suffer and to meet our meet ourselves in a in a place of vulnerability that just isn't you know part of our of, of how we currently live. Well, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of people listening to this are probably saying, well, Dean and Rich are so blessed. Like, they've created these ideal lives that they just love. I'm not like that. Like, I have to go to the office. I've got this. I've got this obligation. You don't have to go to the office. I mean, you can carve out your own niche. Everyone can do that. And I Mm -hmm. think a lot of people feel trapped, but that's because they are trapped. They've made themselves trapped. They're, you know, who was it who said, you know, that we all live in a cage with the door wide open? Um, We're all in cages and we all create our own heaven or hell. Yeah. yeah, it's up to us. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I think it's easy to to look at your life or my life and just say, well, you know, they have it easier. But like you, I mean, you quite literally burst out of your cage and went <laughs> running through the night to escape it. Uh, mine came a little bit later and was, a, a, you know, a little less dramatic and immediate, but it was the same thing. It was like, I, I, I don't want to be part of this system anymore. I've got to find a different way to live my life. And it took me a very long time to figure out how to do that. Um, well, and let me, let me, you plug in my book. Let me plug Rich's book. If you haven't yeah, read Finding Ultra, book. please read that book. It is a, a, a hell of a story. It's a hell of a story. I, I just wish I'd burst out of the Paragon <laughs> Bar, at, you know, in the middle of the night and, and, and run all the way to, you know, however far you ran Rich to Half is, Moon Bay. He, he wasn't always what he is today, <laughs> no. believe me. That's the, yeah. the episode of you trying to walk up your stairs. 
when you were well he wasn't quite as slender as he was as he is today not back quite. in the day not yeah. quite but um but i had to put myself i th- i think that you know speaking from my own experience the I had been an athlete in college and I knew I knew that relationship between suffering and meaning like I had touched that in my past and for some reason I felt like I needed to reconnect with that in order to answer this question about what I wanted to do with my life and it wasn't a direct it's not a direct calculus I just knew that the answers that eluded me that I was seeking would be found with me out alone spending time in nature uh, with no other sound other than my breath and my heart beating and, you know, sweating and, and trying to get to that, 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 that place of purity that only comes when you're completely stripped down. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that's part of the reason I'm involved with Chicken Soup for the Soul and this running for good, because you get to read about 101 people that did just as you're describing. I mean, every single story is just what you described. And I think it's empowering for other people to read that. It almost gives them permission. Like, you know, hey, my neighbor did this, I can right. do it, you know. Or like I can't, you know, I can't connect with Dean or I can't connect with Rich, but I can connect with this veteran who has PTSD or this mom or this, this person mom. who's, who, you know, has an amputated limb. Yeah, or, uh, even, I mean, you know, even just everyday hardships, you know, people that couldn't walk to the end of their driveway to get the newspaper, they were so obese. Like she couldn't walk to the end of her driveway and she said, this is, something's gonna happen here. And now she's running half marathons. Wow! So yeah, what are what are some of your other favorite uh, excerpts from the book stories? Well, there's a there's another crew member uh, at Badwater for me named Michelle Barton. I think you know mm. Michelle. And um, after she crewed for me, she got inspired to actually run it, Rich. So I think you got to go mm. back and actually run it. And she tells Uh-oh. her story of running Badwater. And you think I had it rough. <laughs> She should read her story. Yeah, uh, why? She, what happened? Uh, she, you don't want to spoil it? Yeah, I mean, to, <laughs> I'll just say blisters under the toenails for one. Yeah, I mean, she had wow. it really tough, and she finished. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and and what else? There's so many stories in here. Uh, a friend of mine, Burr Purnell, uh, took his family to Greece. He went on vacation, and they saw some refugees. So if you've ever been to Greece, which I'm Greek, so on some of the islands, there's refugee camps from Syria, people trying to get out yeah. of Syria. And his daughter asked him, Dad, what are, what are the, why are those people behind the gates? And he explained to her that they're refugees. And she it so touched her. She said, I don't like this. I don't want people to be like this. So he contacted uh, the aid workers and said, you know what? I, I want, we want to get involved. What can I do? And they said, well, you're a runner. Why don't you take some of the, the young boys running? Like these, these boys, they're young kids. Like they have no, you know, there's, there's no outlet for them. So he started a running group on Lesbos uh, for these wow. young Syrian refugee boys. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. The story, yeah, I'm, t- I'm tearing up just reading about it. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. super cool. And how about that how is, self, selfless is that? Right, I mean, think right, about the right. daughter. We, they're going to some resort in Greece. You know, it's all great. And all of a sudden, they're in these refugee camps instead. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but that's an experience they'll never forget. Never. No, it's amazing. Yeah. And what a what a beautiful thing to do with your daughter. That's I mean, for her, how transformational is that to see yeah. what your dad did? Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow, that's amazing, man. Um, you got to read the book. <laughs> I know. Well, I just I just started. There's so many stories. Part of it is like 
I don't need motivation to run. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I don't need to be inspired because yeah. it's like, that's what I prefer to do. Yeah. Like you actually have to inspire me or motivate me to do something else other than that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I love, you know, the heartfelt stories of just everyday people who find meaning and purpose through the most simplest of endeavors, which is putting one foot in front of the other. It yeah. doesn't get any more like basic or elemental than that. Yeah. What do you think you would do if something happened, God forbid, and you couldn't run anymore? Have you thought about I, that ever? Know, I've always defined my finish line as a pine box. Uh-huh. So I don't like answering hypothetical questions. Uh, you know, I, one thing I'm doing right now, which uh, I don't think I told you about, is I'm getting a, um, a classics degree from Villanova. Oh, so I'm wow. in a graduate, uh, I love ancient Greek culture. So I'm getting yeah. my classics degree. And that's really fulfilling. That's cool. Yeah. You could do that remotely from Marin or do you have to yep, go to Villanova? It's, no, it's, I got to go to Villanova mm. um, at the end to defend my thesis, but it's it's all remote. What is so. your thesis on? Uh, I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, I'm you only, don't know? no, I don't know yet. Yeah. But it's going to have something to do with Probably with Greeks and running. Running, probably. Yeah. <laughs> or Greeks and athletes, at yeah. least. Yeah. Well, yeah. when we were when we were running through the night in Badwater, you were telling me all about this amazing professor that you found who was the the guy when it came to, you know, the yeah. running culture of ancient Greece. Paul Cartledge, Dr. Cartledge from Cambridge University. Yeah. Yep. He's the he's profoundly influenced me. This guy is a walking encyclopedia, well, Wikipedia. I mean, he knows more about ancient history. He's amazing. He speaks, I think, six languages, you know, fluent Greek. He speaks Latin. I mean, he's just an amazing guy. And he's so humble. If he was here, he's so humble and unassuming. He's just the greatest guy. Yeah. yeah. So he really influenced me to, to, you know, pursue this degree. Wow. Yeah. So focusing on Greek history. Mm-hmm. So what have you learned about Greek history and that culture since you wrote the book as a result of this classics program? That things go full circle, <laughs> that the Greeks were wiser than we are today. And a lot of the stuff we're talking about, these very fundamental ways of achieving happiness, you know, if you read um, Plato or you read Socrates, that's what they talk about. So it's, it's not a lot different than this conversation. Mm. Yeah, because they were facing the same thing. The Greeks, there was a huge, um, income disparity in ancient Greece. Uh, people were um, living frivolous lives of excess. <laughs> yeah. And they were saying, no, don't, it's not gonna, that's, that's the wrong direction to go. Yeah. yeah. And this have, is 2,500 years ago. Have you studied the Stoics at all? I have. Because now this is such a zeitgeisty thing. Everybody's yeah. all about the Stoics because yeah. of Ryan Holiday and his amazing books, not yeah. the least of which is right here, Ego is the Enemy. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's fascinating that this, you know, this canon of ancient wisdom um, is now been made so popular. And I think in part, it's because it's so practical and relevant to the problems that we're having today. Like we're having like these, these ruminations, whether it's Marcus Aurelius or Seneca or Epictetus, they're probably- Finally, they, you got a Greek in there. You got two like, Romans, yeah, yeah, like, when's right, a Greek yeah. coming in there? Yeah. I mean, the, they, they, they write about the problems that they're facing. And if you can kind of extract out, you know, whatever is relevant to that time and age, you realize like, these are the same things that occupy our unconscious and conscious minds on a day-to-day basis. How to be more productive, how to prioritize what's most important, you know, how to focus our lives around meaning and purpose and fulfillments and, and, and the like. And I think because of the way, the things that we've already talked about here today, there is a crisis of, 
uh, of people trying to find meaning in their lives because they're pursuing careers that are not as fulfilling as perhaps they would have been 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 200 years ago. Um, and it's leading people back. Ago. Yeah, I mean, two, we're talking 2,500 right, years ago. Eight, bringing yeah. people back to this, these ancient texts where these people spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff and trying to construct pathways forward that are practical. No, it, to me, that's what it was. It was so profound to read these, mm-hmm. you know, the messaging from ancient Greece and say these are the same issues we're facing today. And you know, what what are the strategies to overcome? And they're not a lot different than what we're talking about right now. Right. Yeah. Right. We should just be naked below the Acropolis, you know, eating grapes, <laughs> <laughs> drinking wine. <laughs> Other than that, it's all good. And and the occasional fifty-five mile training run, I suppose. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So when you go back to Greece um, for this race, are you going to do it? in the traditional garb again? Hell no, <laughs> I'm taking my <laughs> that athlete. Was a, that was a misfire, That was a one right? and done, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the first time, if for those of you listening, I ran uh, eating only the ancient Greek food. So I ran with uh, cured meat, like a beef jerky, uh-huh. uh, something they called pastilli, which is uh, ground sesame seed and honey. Oh, it's almost like an energy paste. Uh, nuts, you know, just basic foods that um, Phidippides, the ancient uh, marathoner would have used. And it was not a good experience. Right. <laughs> and you had like the skirt and the sandals too, didn't you? For I, at least for part of it, right? You I ran. The, the I I did a marathon. Oh, in the, the skirt. Mar- right. Those are yeah. two different things. Yeah. Okay. I, well, I was going to try and test wearing it. Like, how would it go? And it didn't go so well. <laughs> not good, right? No. And the foods went well. Yeah. The foods I ran. I did like 10, 12 hour training runs. But what I learned is. You can eat figs for ten or twelve hours. That's fine. Yeah. But when you eat figs for twenty-four or thirty hours, you can't live on figs right. for obvious reasons. Yeah. Why do you eat figs? Yeah. This is the you, fallacy of like we should get back to the way we used to do things. <laughs> taking it too far. It's like just because they did that that long ago doesn't mean that that was the best way to do it. Well, and, and they weren't trying to. We've learned a few things since yeah, then. And they weren't running one hundred fifty-three miles, you know, uh-huh. nonstop for thirty-six hours. They were eating figs throughout the day, which is fine, or even in a short run, but. Yeah. 36 hours of figs is not good on not the stomach. Good. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Talk about having to pull over to the side <laughs> of the road, right? Um, how, why do you think that you've been able to, from what I can tell, like I don't think you've ever sustained an overuse injury. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, um, I shouldn't say that because I'm probably trip on the door, right. just doorstep and break my leg when I walk out of here. But yeah, I never had an injury. Never, never uh, Achilles, nothing. Nothing, Rich. Wow. I do a lot of cross training, uh-huh. which so I think t- yeah, helps. Tell me, walk me through like that routine and, and maybe how it's evolved over the years. So I do, I have this routine of hit training. Uh, so I have an office just like yours. Well, you've seen my house. Um, mm-hmm. And I've got a pull-up bar and a sit-up mat. And um, throughout the course of the day, and I'm never sitting like we're doing now. I'm just standing, you know, answering emails, whatever, writing. You have a standing desk. Standing desk. And then I do, I do this... Uh, hit cycle, it's about 12 to 13 minutes, of push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, uh, chair dips, and burpees. Mm-hmm. And it keeps my heart rev for the whole time. You're pretty much redlining the whole time. And I do maybe five or six of those throughout the course of the day, all with body weight, no, right. no actual weights, yeah. So you're at your desk, you type a few, you work for 15, 20 minutes, and then you do like a little routine and then return back to the desk. So you're, and then yeah. you're just repeat, you're constantly kind of, so you're just kind of constantly in a perpetual state of training. Constantly, exactly, exactly. And when you're, what is, what is, what is writing a book look like for you then? Because for me, like I have to sit and I have to 
remove, like I can't do it in tiny chunks. Like I have to really sit for hours and hours and hours and like mire my, like marinate in, I can't get there. Thoughts. Do you just dictate on a headset or something like that? I cannot, I, I, I've tried meditation. I can't, I've got to be moving. Like I cannot Uh meditate. Um, to me, uh, you know, motion uh, stirs emotion. So I run and write. I mean, I literally mm-hmm. run. I dictate into a, um, my iPhone now, but I run. I write a lot of verses while I'm running. Wow! And that's when you can, you know, you can really wordcraft a sentence when you're running because you think about permutations or you know how you're going to say it, how you're going to say what you're going to say, how best to say it, how creatively to say it. And when you're running, you just have your clearest thoughts. I do, at least. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you just pull it out and do like a voice memo. Yep. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I can memorize entire, sometimes two or three paragraphs. And that I'm thinking, wow, I'm big shit, right? But, I mean, um, the old uh, Lears that read The Odyssey, they were, you know, they were write, reading, they were memorizing 9,000 uh, sentences, basically 9,000 sentences, 9,000 lines of text mm. they memorized and they'd orally uh, you know, give their orations uh, over the course of five or six hours. Every single word, perfect. Those guys need a they they need to get a life. <laughs> there was no there was no Twitter feed there. There's no distractions. <laughs> there was nothing else for them to do. Right? It's an Instagramable moment. Oh Hold it. I'm at eight thousand yeah. nine hundred ninety nine. I'm going to nail this last sentence. Get this one. Um, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so then you take that. So I'm just trying to like kind of grok the process. So you would do that, and then you come back and then transcribe it, or how does that work? Yeah, like, go transcribe it exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have so, a glass of water, uh, right. sit down, transcribe, and also, you know, when you come to an end of a chapter, you're thinking, what direction do I take this book? Right? I mean, you know, w- what's the story going to be? So thinking about how you're going to, you know, craft the next paragraph or the next, even the next chapter, even the next. You know, half a book. Like, which direction is going to go? Are you going to talk mm. about this now? Let's talk about this. You know, it's like writing, right? It's a lot of thinking. Yeah, that is the definition of of effective multitasking. <laughs> if you're training and writing your book at the same time. You may be. The I think only it's the be- I think it's the best time that. to do it. Yeah. I really. I mean, anyone listening to this, I know they're saying that. that yeah, I have my best thoughts when I'm running as well. Yeah, it's inevitable. It's true. Yeah, I think they need to figure out a more seamless way of like trying to. You know, if you're running, then pulling out your phone and then like, how are you like, t- you yeah. know, like if there was a really easy way to just go bip on your, you know, push one button or whatever and let it, let it flow. I don't know. Yeah, that'd be easy. Maybe I've got, a, I've got a handle on my know. phone. So I just run with my phone and just yeah. voice dictation, voice memo. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm yeah. going to try, I'm going to try that. But you yeah. don't listen to any music or audio I listen to audio books like once that. in a oh, while. Oh, you do? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. No podcasts. Yeah. Of course I listen to you, Rich. <laughs> no, you don't. Every single one. He's Come lying. on. He's lying. Um, that is amazing about never never having had an overuse injury, like no back problems and nothing like that. Like that is tr- that's remarkable. I think you're you're unique in that. And I that must be it has to be because of all the cross training that you're doing. Because the running I, without that, there's no way. I think it's a three hundred and sixty degree um, view that it allows me to be the best animal I can be. So I look at my entire life through the lens of being the best runner I can be. Mm-hmm. So that means we know training, cross training. That means good quality sleep. It means diet. It's everything. But I also think it means interpersonal relationships. Like if you have good, stable interpersonal relationships, um, your performance is a lot better. If, if your re- interpersonal relationships are disruptive and you have, 
you know, you're, you're battling with people, it, it impacts performance. Mm-hmm. We know this. And so that's the other thing I try to optimize is my interpersonal relationships. You know, part of the things you talk about is, you know, you associate with people that, that bring you up, right? You don't associate with people that bring you down. And, you know, that, that's been a lesson I've learned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also you associate maybe with fewer people. I mean, I'm an introvert, so I have fewer, closer friends. And I'm very comfortable uh, on my own. Like a lot of people yeah. I think are not comfortable by themselves. Like I don't mind running with myself for three hours. I'm not bored. Yeah. Like it's, I'm, I'm cool being by myself. Yeah, yeah. I prefer it. <laughs> but you must have people rolling up on you on the trails all the time. Oh, I have some funny things happening. Yeah. yeah. Or even on the tell, roads. Like tell people, me. Uh, you know, I mean, even in the airport walking here, uh, when I was going through TSA on, in Oakland, the TSA guy's like, oh my God, you're, the, you're that ultra marathoner guy, aren't guy. you? You're the runner guy. Like, my God, you're amazing. You know, he was, he was very discreet. And I said, uh-huh. oh, thanks, bro. Yeah, those, those sort of things happen all the time. Yeah, well, that's nice. Yeah, you know, you're being acknowledged for for who you are. That's cool. Yeah, but it's different if it's like if you're trying to get into the if you're like li- literally writing while you're running and you're in yeah. the middle and then someone wants to run with you or you know like like show you up or something like that. Oh, there's yeah. the ultra marathon guy. Like I'm gonna race him. Yeah, no, I passed a guy a couple of days ago and he he saw me and he uh, he was standing on the trail side just uh, catching his breath and it was really a hot day and he saw me run by so. He obviously caught up to me and we chatted. It was a, it was uh-huh. a fine conversation, you know, and he lasted right. a couple miles. But people yeah. are respectful of you. You know, that. it's good people, Rich. Like, um, I don't have, I'm not like a movie star or rock star where I have all these, you know, fawning fans. Uh, the people that come up to me and say, hey, man, like, really nice to meet you. They're like, I would sit down and have a beer with this guy. Like, mm-hmm. he's a, they're really solid people. So I feel pretty lucky in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how often are you going out and doing like the, you know, just you show up at these 5Ks, 10Ks, marathons, like you seem to do that a lot. I do it. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's sponsorship sort of stuff. Right. So I do it quite a bit. Yeah. How many sponsors yeah. are you working with now? It's fluid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the other thing with my life. And I'm sure like yours, you're just, I mean, I'm a, a deal chaser. You're constantly chasing your next deal. Like you're never sure how much, how long this sponsorship's going to last. You're never sure who the next one's going to be. So you're always prospecting, and you're always chasing sponsors. So that's uh-huh. you know that's a pretty tough element. And you do that all. You do that yourself. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I tried working with a couple agencies, and they just they don't get endurance sports. Like you get lost with the basketball players and the football players, and you're just you know let's face it, you're you know you're small potatoes compared to those guys. In certain respects, yes, and in other ways, no. Like I feel like that's shifting, but not shifting quite a bit. My sense is that most, um, you know, most of the large companies or the companies that would be candidates for sponsoring a person like yourself have a certain way in which they perceive athletes. It's like these are the, you know, these are the people that we work with. This is their race schedule. These are the podiums they're going to be on. This is the kit that they're, they're going to wear. And here's where our logo is going to be. And it's a very kind of binary um, way of thinking. Whereas I look at someone like yourself and your appeal, like your, your, your value to a sponsor has nothing to do with like a podium yeah. or uh, you know whatever gear you're going to wear it's 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 a lifestyle thing and you have the ability to reach so many people and so many different kinds of people and you bring in all of these people who have no idea who's first second or third at this race or that race this is not part of their universe and yet what you speak to is meaningful for these people and so it's confusing to me why 
more sponsors don't understand the value of that because I actually think that's more valuable than some guy who can run, you know, a, a, a two twelve marathon, but is somebody that no one's ever heard of. Rich, that pitch you just gave me. How many <laughs> like, executives I've yeah, laid that like, same pitch, and they look at me blank, like like with the glazed uh-huh. over, like, well, you know, your name's not on the side of Staple Stadium. I mean, you know, they they, right. they don't they don't get. It. I mean, I was with Wasserman. Uh-huh. Uh, and Wasserman Group, they just they literally shut down their their uh, endurance group. Mm-hmm. So they laid off everyone. That was just a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I didn't even know and, that. Yeah, and of this, and Casey's a great guy, and he's super into endurance sports. Like I would yeah, think that was, he gets it, was, it, but something's yeah, missing there. Yeah, something was missing. And of the six or seven deals we did, literally all of them came through me. Yeah, I get it. You know, it's hard, man. You got to be a hustler. It's like. Back to like, hey, this is the life that you wanted, and this is the life that you're creating for yourself. You're forging, you know, a situation that is without precedence. Like, yeah. who would have thought, like, a guy who is super into running ultra marathons and is really good at it could create not just a vocation out of it, but one with longevity. You know, like that—that's yeah. not an easy thing, and yet you've been able to do it year after year after year. Well, I mean, I look to models, people like you, like say but Laird. I, fo- I follow in your footsteps. I mean, look you- at like Laird Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he's a big wave surfer. I don't know how much does he surf these days. Probably not as much as I mean, he surfs he every to. day because he lives yeah. out here. You know, you yeah. see him around and stuff like that. But he's not competing. He's not a competitive surfer. Yeah, or Tony Hawk. I mean, how did he carve out a, a make a go of it skateboarding? Who would ever think you could do this? But they figured you it out. You can make a cool video game out of skateboarding. You can't, you can't do that with <laughs> ultra running. running. That would really, be a really boring really video game. Really boring, yeah. <laughs> You're just going to run on this trail for the next 55 <laughs> hours. Let's see if you how many Red Bulls you're going to drink in that Lazy Boy chair before you fall asleep. Oh, he's going to pee again. Let's yeah. get that one. <laughs> <laughs> Extra bonus points for not having diarrhea. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> Come on. Get a little graphic here. Yeah. No, it's true though. Yeah, like, I, you know, Laird is, is probably the best example or, or Tony Hawk, like yeah. people who excelled at what they do, but have still, you know, been able to create a life out of it that, that extends beyond um, the paradigm of competition. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So what's next for you, man? You got these races coming up, but what's, what's, what's the longer view? You just keep writing books, keep well, doing I'm your thing? I'm writing like, another book. Like as you? an author, you're only as good as your next book, right? Mm-hmm. That's the saying. So I'm writing another book. I just um I sold motion picture rights to Ultra Marathon. Oh, Man. you did? Yeah. So it's who'd you sell them to? around. It's it's a, a producer on the East Coast, uh-huh. Sergio Riaz, and he's a really good guy. That's exciting. He's a young kid. He read my book. He like lost, you know, I think he lost 80 pounds. He was living in Idaho and he's like changed his life and he's yeah, so that's exciting. Um, what else? I just won. I was given the uh, president's uh, council on uh, sports, fitness, and nutrition. I just won the lifetime achievement award. Wow! So I get to go back to Washington D.C. and get that's that. That's cool. Will yeah. they give you a fancy medal? I, I plaque. I hope. I Who hope gives so. it to you? I, I let's not go there. Okay. Because our current guy at the top is not necessarily the the. The picture of fitness and health is right. he? He doesn't really embrace. Is those he the values. one who's going to hand it to you? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. It should be interesting. <laughs> well, congratulations. That's Thanks. super cool. I, you know, why it's cool to me is one of my mentors, uh, Jack Lane, was the first recipient. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, he was wow. the very first guy, and Arnold's won it as well. So it was, uh-huh. yeah. Do they give that out every year? Every year, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. 
And how long before you finish your classics degree? You write, uh, I'm you on write the, a thesis. I got, yeah, two, I've got about two and a half more years. Uh-huh. It's, I'm on the long. Yeah, I'm only taking yeah. a course or two a, a semester. Right. Yeah. And how old are your kids now? They grown. They're, are they out of the house? They're kids. They're kid. They're yeah. I'm an empty nester. Yeah. Wow. You know what I do all day? Huh. I get up. I walk around naked. You know, I <laughs> have some coffee naked. <laughs> yeah. I bend over, look through the yeah. produce sec. You know, the produce. Uh, drawer in the refrigerator and you know my wife walks around the corner and I'm bending over and she's like are you gonna put clothes on mm. today I'm like you saw where I live like why yeah why well you're way up at the top nobody can see <laughs> in where you're living I don't so freaking you might care well. anymore if they do like yeah. it feels so good to be naked uh-huh. and you know Socrates used to take air baths so he'd go stand out naked in the wind so, yeah. did, so did Benjamin Franklin uh-huh. there's something to be said about an air bath you gotta try it Rich <laughs> It's an really liberating, bath. yeah, an air bath. That reminds me of that scene in Jerry Maguire when uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. is like, comes out of the shower and Tom Cruise is like, do you want a towel? And he's like, no, air dry. <laughs> air dry, I remember so that. So he was tapping into his inner Socrates, I suppose. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's cool. Is your, is your wife still practicing dentistry? She is. She uh, retire from that? No, she's actually in real estate now. Oh, wow. So she's doing real estate. Um, she also sells, transacts dental practices. So- to sell a dental practice in California, you have to be uh, a licensed dentist and a licensed realtor. Mm. So how many of those exist? So she has a little niche on that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what do your kids think about what you do? Like, are they into? I know you've you've done some events with your son, right? You ran a these, marathon these with your crew, son. Yeah, they've 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 done some running with uh-huh. me. They just they don't think anything right unusual with me. Yeah. My my kids, God bless them. What, could, yeah, what do could they not think? be less interested. Like my daughters want, they have no interest whatsoever in participating in any of these things that like, I mean, they're like, that's cool, dad. Like, but they're not, it's not like when I see other other parents or dads out there and they get their kids to do these things, like, yeah. I'm like I would have to move heaven and earth to get one of my daughters to <laughs> try to do something like that. Like they're and, just, they just, and they, that's fine. Like I don't need them to do that. Like yeah. I, it's not. I don't, like I'm. I'm there to support what it is that lights them up. You know, yeah. like that's what excites me. So it's not yeah. like I I need that to happen. I just find it curious that the universe rigs it for me to have kids that like are interested in things completely different than what gets me out of bed. Yeah. Well, my daughter runs, and we've run. Mm. Um, you, you're probably not gonna like this story, but we ran the uh, Wine Country Half Marathon. Uh-huh. So now I'm gonna get angry. Napa to Go Sonoma ahead. Wine Country Half, and <laughs> get this: at about mile eight of the half marathon, they start serving wine at the aid stations. Oh no! So I'm like, Alexander, should we? She's like, Let's wait till mile ten. So we get to mile ten, and I'm like, Okay, let's indulge. Those are the best three miles of my life. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> we were just. Oh, there's another aid wow. station. I, I don't mind. You want to break two hours? I don't lie to you. Who cares? Yeah. Um, and you had? Do you have a wine company? Marathon. I, wines? I started a label. Yep. Yeah. Marathon wines. Did that yeah. inspire you? <laughs> if we're gonna have wine, it should be my wine on the on the race course. <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah. Well, I mean. So um, how did that come together? It was a collaboration with a Greek guy. I've done a couple collaborations with people on Greek products. Mm-hmm. So I have a product um, called the Naked Greek, which is a body lotion. These are you know kind of like licensing deals, right? Uh, I'm starting a, a CBD line called On the Run, mm-hmm. uh, specifically for runners. So that's another one I'm looking forward to. I, that's you know, cool. You got to pay the bills somehow, right? Yeah, man. Yeah. You're getting it. So CBD oil, wine. You had like you did a <laughs> Body butter, Greek yogurt yeah. thing for a while too, yeah, right? Greek, yep, Greek yogurt. That's why I said you're constantly Olive chasing oil. the deals. Yep, it's just the next thing. All that stuff, man. Yeah. Multifaceted, yeah. Dean Carnazes. Mountain tea. 
hand hand. Oh, idea. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thank yeah. you for that. So that's yeah. your product as well. No, that's uh, a friend of mine. Uh, two two friends of mine, um, Vafni and Chloe, have a company in Greece where they go and pick herbs. That uh-huh. wait till you wait till you try. Yeah. That. So talk to me about what mountain tea is. Uh, it grow. It's they call it shepherd tea in some places. It's just, it's a it's like a an herb, a flowering herb that grows at high elevations in Greece, like Mount Olympus. And it's energetic. It's it's almost like it's like mate, but it's mm. a little different. Yeah. And so, I mean, basically, you just get, it's like a you it's wrap. It's like the full plant. It's not like tea leaves. Yeah. No. Just get so just get a big you, pot. Get a big just, pot. You just steam boil, it. Boil, boil it. water in there. Throw it uh-huh. in there for like fifteen minutes, and then just strain it out. Uh, I put a little stevia in there for sweetness. It's fantastic. Is it caffeinated? No. No caffeine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just some other kind of natural well, there's, energy there's boost. There's something like. 1200 bioactive um, compounds within that tea. There's yeah. all kinds of stuff in there besides, you know, there's theobromine, theophylline. There's a lot of other stuff besides caffeine that it makes you feel good. Right. Yeah. I look forward to checking it out. Thank you right. for that. Um, well, let's, re- let's round this out with a little bit of takeaway wisdom for people that are listening. Um, I want to kind of cater it to, you know, that person who is, you know, on the couch, but maybe on the edge of the couch. Like they're the person who, maybe turns out to witness the New York Marathon and gets energy from that, but hasn't quite made that extra step to get out there themselves. So how do you communicate or speak to that individual to try to inspire them to put on a pair of running shoes and get after it? You know, I always tell people to look inward um, before you start this journey, because let's face it, it's really intimidating to a lot of people. I hear that all the time, like this is so intimidating for me to try to go running. Um, especially if I say, let's go running, because they're thinking, oh, geez, I'm going to have to keep up with Dean. So if you're an introvert, don't sign up for a group running program. You're going to hate it. You're going to feel weird. Yeah, because so, that's what everyone says. Sign up yeah. for a group. You'll love it. If you're an extrovert and you want group support and you like the accountability, like every you know every at 6 p.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays, mm-hmm. we're doing our group run, that's a great way to go about it. I also say uh, invest in a good pair of running shoes. Like go to a specialty running store, not like a big box, not like a big five or, you know, Dick's Sporting Goods. Go to like a Fleet Feet, you know, or one of the grassroots uh, specialty running and get a good pair of shoes. Get fitted. There's so many great shoes out there now. So get fitted for a good pair of shoes. That'll make you more comfortable. And then again, you know, look inside. And if you, if you like, you know, the accountability of being places and you like group dynamics, sign up. Um, I also say pick a pick an event six months down the road, and uh, and sign up. Even mm-hmm. if it's a five k, register and then you're accountable. And tell people that you're going to do it, so that you know on those days when you're feeling up, I'm not going to train today. You know you've like told these people you're going to do this thing, and and do it for charity. It makes it e- you even more accountable. Like right. you're raising money for others. Now you got to do it, and that helps fuel you along. I think a statistic that really surprised me from running USA is that. Something like 80% of the runners start running to lose weight. And like something like 80% of the current runners run because they enjoy it. So it's it says to me that a lot of people start running because they want to lose weight. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, they find that they like running. And so now they lose their weight or they don't, but they keep running. They j- enjoy the act of running. So just getting someone running, I think, is the hardest part. Yeah, I think that that person who gets into it to lose weight can't imagine that one day they would actually enjoy it. Like, it's just like <laughs> yeah. this thing, like I have to do it in order to take off these extra pounds, but I'm not doing it 
because it's fun. It's terrible. I absolutely hate it. And it is hard to get in shape running, but once you're in shape running, that's where the fun begins. It, and it's it's a long process too. Yeah. Like people, it it just that's the problem. If if you could go on one run and the next day it'd be easier, we'd have a lot more runners. But you know, it takes a month before uh-huh. you can actually run a continuous mile. Some people, I mean, some people cannot run. Literally, I say try to run for one minute. Just set your clock for one minute and run continuous. And they can't make it when they first start out. And then they make it. And I say try three minutes, mm-hmm. and they make it three minutes. So it's you know the, it's very quantifiable. Like you know you're making progress if you just set a time goal. And and do it that way, because right. then you see I'm moving forward. I'm, I'm, I ran ten minutes nonstop today. Even if it starts with just walking around the block, you know, I think people think that they they don't want to get into it because they don't want to look bad or they feel like they need to be good at it from the outset. And you know, we are all natural born runners, but you know, we've been living sedentary lives. And I think it's okay to give people permission even before they go to the fleet feet and get measured for, you know, the nice pair of shoes to just put on the Chuck Taylors and or the yeah. flip-flops and like walk around, yeah. walk around the block and whatever it is that you have, you really don't need, not only do you not need permission, you don't really need anything other than your body to do it. And the willpower. The willpower, the willpower. yeah. yeah. Have you seen this um, really great new independent movie, Britney Runs a Marathon? I've, I saw the-, the Did you? I, I haven't seen it yet though. Have you seen it? I, I was I have, dying to see it. Um, it's, it's great. Okay. Uh, the, the I mean, it's gu- not so much about running, right? I mean- It, it is and it isn't. Yeah. Um, it's better than the trailer. It's a really yeah. great movie. And it is about this woman, Britney, and um, how sh- her life has kind of gone sideways. And she gets into running- Initially, yes, to lose weight, but then you know becomes like she's like I'm a runner now, and it and it starts to inform how she makes decisions about her life. So it's really about her regaining control over her life and setting her on a path to respect herself. And the marathon is just a part of that, but it it, it it's it's like this is how she evolves I can't through wait running, to see and it. it's fantastic. Yeah, I can't wait to see um, it. My buddy Utkarsh plays her love interest in the movie, and he's been on the podcast, so that makes it extra special. So for like people who are listening you, out there- I like the way you stated yeah. her love interest. Yeah, well, he's <laughs> like, clinical. he plays like the on again, off again yeah. kind of love interest in the movie. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, really, it's really well done. Is he a runner in the movie? Or no, he's not, he's not, he's not. Um, it's super fun movie. So yeah. yeah, you would love it actually. I think it's great. And well, I think it would inspire anybody who thinks like, well, I'm not a runner and I can't do that. Like the whole kind of narrative is about this person who thinks that way as well and um, proves to herself otherwise. I, I, I applaud the producer, director, everyone yeah, in that yeah. because if, I bet they're gonna inspire a lot of people to start running. Yeah. yeah. It's based on a true story, the writer, director, had a roommate when he was living in New York and it, it was based on this woman's story and how yeah. inspired he was about how she went on this journey for herself and it took him many years, but yeah. you now he's made this movie and it's really cool. Yeah. So, all right. Well, bravo. Final parting, closing words. Inspire me, Dean Carnazes. Run when you can, walk if you have to, crawl if you must, just never give up. That's your mantra, right? <laughs> That's a go-to. Yeah. yeah, I got some others, but that one's always a good one. Yeah. Well, I just I want to publicly acknowledge you for um, the amazing example that you set for millions of people. I think the work that you do is is truly meaningful. 
Um, it inspired me. I don't know that I would be sitting here without the um, path that you blazed ahead of me and the example that you've set for me and the mentorship that you've shown me. Um, so I really appreciate your friendship and, and your counsel. And it means a lot to me that you would come here today and, and share your message with everybody. So thank you. And well, please I, keep doing I pre- what you're I'm doing. much more comfortable running with you than sitting here. Yeah, yeah. One yeah. of these days we're going to get back out and run. <laughs> How about that? Too much podcast. I'll crew for you at Badwater. How's oh, that? No. <laughs> no. I have too much respect for that race. To, <laughs> to, uh, that would that would that would need need a major life uh, rearrangement. Maybe oh. when I'm an empty nester. And I got oh, okay. You're on. You're on the record. Okay. Don't don't cut this out, Blake. No, yeah, it's not getting cut out. That. <laughs> um, all right. Thanks. Come back and uh, anytime. Come back and share share with me when you finish your classics degree and when you got the next book. Thanks for having me, Rich. All I right. appreciate it. Peace, Dean. Let's run it. Beautiful man, that Dean. Hope you guys enjoyed that. For more on him and his world, check out the show notes on the episode page at richworld.com and let him know how this one landed for you by sharing your thoughts with him directly on Twitter at Dean Karnazes and on Instagram at Ultramarathon. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the podcast, subscribe, rate, and comment on the show on Apple Podcasts. That really helps new people discover what we're doing here. Tell your friends about your favorite episode, share the show on social media, Subscribe to my YouTube channel and hit that button on Spotify and Google Podcasts as well, wherever you listen to this. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, interstitial music, and show notes. Blake Curtis and Margot Lumen for videoing the program. Jessica Miranda for graphics. Allie Rogers for portraits. DK for advertiser relationships. And as always, theme music by Analemma. Appreciate the love, you guys. I will see you back here next week. Until then, run when you can, walk if you have to, crawl if you must, just never give up. Those are Dean's words, not mine. Peace. Plants. Namaste.